Sunny here. Welcome to episode six of My Way. I need to ask two huge favors that will require precisely a tap, a scroll, and a tap with any one of your 10 fingers. First, hit the subscribe button on iTunes or Podbean. If you have an iPhone, just click on the My Way podcast written in purple next to the icon. Scroll down until you see five stars and click on any one of the stars that you think this podcast deserves, with five being the best. Thanks for listening and enjoy this interview with fellow Graytonian and woman of the wild, Colleen Begg. Welcome to My Way, a podcast that shares the stories of people who are doing life their way. Listen along as we explore what works, what doesn't, and the experience that happens no matter which path we choose. I'm your host, Sunny Collins. Thanks for listening. I'm Colleen Big. I am a conservationist, passionate about wilderness, mom, wife. So thanks for coming today um, to be with me on the My Way podcast. So we'll start with what brought you to Grayton. Actually, another Grayton resident, uh, Mike Cock, who's a wildlife vet. We met him a long time ago because he taught us how to catch honey badgers and implant them. And so when we needed some peace to be able to write articles and um, reports, we used to come and live in his house in Grayton. And then one day we just thought, well, what are we waiting for? Why don't we just move here? Because this is the perfect place for people who normally live in the bush. Where and when were you born? I was born in Johannesburg in 1969. So next year is my 50th birthday, which is quite a mouthful. Wow. (laughs) Okay. So what is your first and most vivid memory? It's hard to know what's a memory and what I've remembered because of photographs. So I would say it's being in my garden in Johannesburg. My parents were avid gardeners. I used to spend a lot of time outside. Um, So I was always out in the garden. Always out with them. I guess our dog with them. So it was very simple sort mm-hmm. of memories. And then my parents uh, we used to go for holidays into Lorenzo Marks in Mozambique every year before my grandparents left in 1975. And I can remember parts of that because there were these big, huge family gatherings, and everybody used to go back to Maputo. What were your parents like? Siblings? So my father is a, was a bank manager. He worked in finance. And my mom was a nurse, but she gave it up to look after us. And we, um, they weren't bush people at all, so I never went into the bush as a kid. And I've got two older sisters um, who were five and seven years older than me, so it was kind of tough because I was always annoying to them. But I always held them in high esteem, so I always wanted to play with them. They got, you know, hairbrushes thrown at me and told to go away because I was annoying. Yeah. But we had a, I lived in the same house all my life until I left for university. I had an amazingly stable and happy childhood. Right? Yeah. I really did. I was very lucky. Yeah. And did you have any heroes or role models when you were a child? Not Really, although once I got a bit older, then obviously I read all the books about Jane Goodall and Diane Fossey and uh, George Shaler and those, you know, inspired. I had a feeling their names might come up. (laughs) (laughs) Which is amazing because the guys who work with us in Mozambique have never heard of them. But I think they have inspired such a a large number of generations of people. Right. Um, I I didn't like, you know, watching um, 
Nat Geo or documentaries or anything. So I think those were my heroes, really. And what did you want to be when you grew up? I always knew I wanted to live in the bush. So when I was young, probably about 10 or 11, it was simply framed as sleeping on a Land Rover roof in the bush. It didn't have a sort of, I want to be a scientist or I want to be a biologist. And then as I spoke to more and more people, um, I started to frame it a little bit better in high school of how I was going to get there. And I realized I didn't want to teach biology, which some had said that I should do. And I didn't want to be an academic at a university and mm. I didn't want to be a guide. And so then I started to frame it more that I wanted to be a conservationist and a zoologist. What was it about living in the bush that initial sort of core yeah. desire? It's, it's, I have no idea. And I have to, you know, when I look at Keith, my husband, he, he had a father who was a biologist, and he spent all his holidays in the bush. So he knew where it came from, that love for it. But I'd never been in the bush. Yeah. Yet I always knew that that's what I wanted to do. So I have to think it's maybe the garden. I don't know. It was I was always outside, always. Yeah. And you know, I was fascinated by the birds in the garden and the plants and the soil and the rocks and whatever. Yeah. But there was there's nothing really that was that defining moment at all. So Strange. interesting. And it was lived in Joburg. That, oh, right. I mean, it was suburban Johannesburg. So yeah. it had a freedom that actually is very similar to Grayton. I had this long conversation with someone the other day um, from Kenya, and we're just talking about what the defining moment was. And yeah. Some people can can immediately point to it, that this was the thing that got you in. Yeah. But for, more, for me, it was almost always just there. It was yeah. just, I just kind of knew. And I think in some ways I was very lucky that I always knew more or less what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. um, but where it came from, no idea. It, yeah. What do you feel like is different about growing up today, specifically with your kids, as opposed to growing up when you were their age? I think for me, um, at the moment, they're 11 and 9, we've managed to design our life so that their lives fairly similar or even better um, because we live in a bush and because we live in Grayton. Mm -hmm. But those were conscious decisions to make sure that they at least had what we had when we were growing up. So they still have the safety, they still walk around, they still cycle, they still have, you know, climb over fences to visit their friends. Mm -hmm. I think what concerns me more is when they get to be teenagers. And then I think one is the ability to tell what information is true and what isn't. Because for me, I just picked up an encyclopedia and I knew what was in the encyclopedia was true. Yeah. And now they're going to have to maneuver their way through the internet. And I often get caught out by not by thinking someone's true and it isn't. And then the, yeah, I think it's all actually related to the internet and being asked. Kids mm. aren't on their cell phones. They don't use an iPad other than for a little bit of maths. So they're also outside. But I know that as soon as we give them phones, then they will be caught up in it and that will be a major difference way I mean you can teach them look at the source look at that but that's not so easy no either. it isn't so that's what I worry about the most is how you you get that critical thinking about what's true and what isn't and also just not it's so easy to get hooked on your phone yeah I think I feel grateful that I didn't grow up with a phone because it's yeah, and so I feel grateful that they haven't mm -hmm. and that they've had that and hopefully that will stand them in good stead that they will always have a feeling for quietness and wilderness. And I know that Ella often doesn't like a lot of noise, so she doesn't like malls. She's, 
she gets, she just, after yeah. a while, she's just had enough. So I hope that stays with them. Yeah, yeah. What have your kids taught you? Oh, they've taught me to be more balanced. If there's a single thing that having kids taught me is that I have to take time out. I'm, I'm very intense, and so is Keith. And so because I'm homeschooling, and because also you just want to spend time with them, I'm forced, and it sounds awful because it is a joy, but mm. I'm forced to take time where I go down to the river with them or I take the dog for a walk. And um, that's the first thing. So they've made me more balanced. And someone actually said that to me before I had children, that children would make you human um. Um, and because they did that to him. And I think because we're so intense, it's very important. Um, and the second is that they live in the moment. You know, when, when we've taken the kids to see elephants that have been killed um, by poachers, a lot of people have given us a lot of flack for doing that, um, but we sort of integrate them in our conservation work. But they see it, they sad about it, they cry about it, and then, and then they move on. Mm-hmm. And I think that adults, it sits in our head, and we worry about it, and we worry about the future, and we worry about our inability to help, and we, we, we keep at it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have a very vivid imagination, so I keep at it in my head, whereas mm-hmm. they just move on. Yeah. It's building resilience. I mean, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah, I but, agree. So talk about your education. So I went to a government school in Johannesburg. Um, so primary school, secondary school, and high school, where I went all the way through with a cohort of friends. So again, the stability thing that I had, which was lovely. Mm-hmm. And uh, it wasn't a fancy school. It was great, just down the road. Um, and then I went to university, Wits University in Johannesburg and did a BSc, majoring in zoology and botany. I did my honours in zoology and then felt that I needed to take some time off because you get caught in a route. And I, was, I wasn't I was sure that that's exactly the, the way that I wanted to do. So I went to the US for a year and worked as a volunteer on a whole lot of um, conservation projects. Oh, wow. And then when I came back, I did my master's in Zimbabwe on socio-ecology, so including communities in conservation. And um, worked with some people who basically started campfire programs in Zimbabwe and that was really where my education started Mm -hmm. and then did my PhD back in South Africa but on honey badgers but with the intention always that all I wanted to do was to run a conservation project and the PhD gave me the credibility to be able to do it. I had never had any interest of being part of academia. And so that leads into what do you do for a living? Uh, kind of, you can see that what I, my playing and my working are all intertwined. And I'm an accountant. Yes. <laughs> so um, what do I do? So I, it's hard even to put into words. So I do <laughs> conservation, but uh, it's um, wildlife conservation, mainly focused on lions, leopards, hyenas, wild dogs, um, in Nyasa National Reserve in northern Mozambique. Um, but I also work a lot on livelihoods, environmental education, politics, and all the things that conservation is really about. So I don't do conservation biology, I do conservation. And so I run a team with my husband, we're the directors of the project, and we run a team of 100 Mozambicans. And how long have you been doing that? For 16 years. So after I finished my PhD, you have these moments in your life where you can you're free to do anything. So we, we traveled around Africa for a year looking for a place where we could make a contribution. And we found Nyasa um, and we then went traveling and came back to Nyasa in northern Mozambique. 
and they've been there ever since. This episode of My Way has been brought to you by Honey Badgers. Whenever you feel thin-skinned, think of the honey badger. Native to Africa, Southwest Asia, and India, this passionate bundle of violence grabs life by the neck and literally does not let go, causing lions to think twice and water buffalo to reconsider their options. The honey badger is a role model for pure, unfettered self-confidence. Treating cobras like unwilling licorice and crunching on tortoises like apples, the thick skin and powerful jaws of the honey badger allows it to sample a wide variety of prey. In the world of the honey badger, nests are overrated. They prefer holes. Herds are for horses. Honey badgers prefer to fly solo. Specified diet plans are for pandas. Honey badgers eat anything from melons to mambas. Can you reverse your incomprehensibly foul anal gland to ward off anyone who threatens your lifestyle? I didn't think so. Though the honey badger has earned the title of the meanest animal on earth, they are often no match to poisons and traps set by humans. While honey badgers may not care, we humans need to care in order to preserve this incredible animal. Honey badgers, ripping nature a new one. How do you feel like your perception of the place and what you're doing there and your role there has changed from year one to year 16? So when we first got there, we uh, Keith was doing filmmaking. So he was making films, wildlife documentaries. And I was basically doing research. So um, doing surveys of carnivores there, trying to figure out what was going on, studying honey badgers in a different place where I'd done my PhD. And then about four years on, we realized that we needed to shift into conservation because what we were doing was documenting the demise of species and we weren't doing anything about it. In, in terms of honey badgers, because I, most people don't run into a person on a daily basis who's like, oh yeah, I've studied honey badgers. Can you talk about, can you talk a little bit about your claim to fame for honey badgers? So the first thing is it's very easy to be an expert on honey badgers. <laughs> Because they are on a handful of people who've studied them. So the first the first thing, if you want to be known for something, just do something no one else has studied. Okay. So uh, Keith had always been fascinated by honey badgers since he was a kid. Okay. And when he was working in Kruger, um, one morning, even before he was he, he was working as a schoolboy, um, he was standing on one of the gates at one of the, the, the camps there, and a honey badger came trotting down the road, saw him standing on the gate, and then just ducked under him absolutely confident and that started Keith's sort of love affair with honey badgers wow. so he went to minor pools while I was doing my masters to start a study on honey badgers but it was too complicated there and he also realized that he wanted to do photography and filming filming and because we were together by that stage he said did I want to take on the research because no one had ever looked at them so then we spent uh, four years of most amazing years of our lives studying honey badgers and making a Nat Geo documentary on, on them. We basically lived with them. So we'd go out in the dunes in the Kalahari. We lived in uh, Land Rover um, until with honey badgers that we'd habituated until we ran out of water. And then we'd go back to camp, have a shower, collect more water and go back out. And we did that for four years. And it was an incredible, hedonistic, wonderful time where you could just immerse yourself and as a result of that, I got my PhD. We did an FGO article um, with 
photography and then we did the Nat Geo film with David and Carol Hughes who were sort of our mentor mentors in filmmaking which were a generation ahead of us okay so since then so then what happened I don't know if you want to hear the rest of the yes, story. yes yes <laughs> so, yes definitely so this is an amazing story that has shows you how life takes you on these strange journeys so <laughs> So all that happened, it was all great. You know, we had some people talking about honey badgers. But then a comedian in the US, uh, he says he found a clip of our film, our Nat Geo film, um, on the internet and then put a comedy soundtrack on it. His father apparently used to work for the BBC and so he was used to this very dry script that goes on the top and yes. there was a honey badger like ripping the head off mice <laughs> and there was you know our script saying you know honey badgers are carnivals or whatever you know so he thought it was ridiculous he made the honey badger don't care um little script at the top of it and it went viral so before we knew it 70 million people had watched this little clip and suddenly everybody knew who a honey badger was and it became a meme, an internet meme, yeah. and there were people that were sportsmen were called honey badgers, and politicians, and there was all this merchandising, and of course we had nothing to do with it. Amazing. And it was an amazing story, and so people said to us, oh, you've got to take him to court, and you need to sue him, and we were like, we'd never have reached those people anyway. Exactly. Because we only reached the converted, we only reached the right. conservationists. Right. So he got hold of us, and eventually we wrote a forward for a little book that he brought out, but he's a great guy, and he never expected the reaction that he got either. But it just shows you that these things have a life of their own, and the internet has a life of its own, because yes. you, you couldn't have predicted that that, that would have happened. And fantastic. I mean, I actually remember specifically where I was when I first saw that honey badger video, the first one that he made. I was sitting at my desk at the aquarium and it was just cracking up with one of my friends. Like, oh my God, this is genius. This is like the antithesis of David Attenborough. We love David Attenborough, but this is like a whole new way to reach. I didn't even know what a honey badger was. Well, exactly. And that's exactly <laughs> it. So at least now, I mean, I don't... I don't know how it converts into conservation, right? but at the very least, people know what honey badger is. They know that there are more animals on this planet than, you know, dog, yes. cat, cow, horse. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And maybe one day if someone says, hey, do you know that they're in danger or do yeah. you want to buy one on the internet or eBay or something? Right. They'll say no. Right. I don't know. What is a typical day like for you? <laughs> it's really funny because we don't, and you know, often kids get asked that when they get interviewed and we don't really have a typical day and you know that, that's mm -hmm. why you laugh. So what is an atypical day? <laughs> yes. So what? So it's a standing joke in our camp that we come down and we sit down with our team and we say, okay, this is what we're going to do today. And, and honestly, not 30 minutes later, the whole thing has been thrown out the window. Um, but... But a typical day for me actually is not as romantic as everyone thinks. So I live in a, a beautiful camp in a tent um, on a platform. So I, I live in the bush and I love it. However, because we're now managing a team of 100 people, mm -hmm. I spend a lot of time fundraising. I spend a lot of time writing reports on the computer. I spend a lot of time solving issues with staff and communities. So I do a lot of the community work. So when things really fall apart in the communities then I try and go in there. Um, Keith does a lot of the logistics but unfortunately the results of running a big project now is that we've gone very far away from just going out and radio tracking lions or doing the field work because we have a team that does it and they do it very well. Yeah. So I do it when I feel like it but that's not my job but that's fine because the 
mission is the same. Do you miss that? I do miss it. Mm-hmm. And and one of the things I've been trying to, um, our life is very out of control at the moment, very overwhelming. There's a lot of risk. There's a lot of threats of all these animals. And so it's very stressful. And so I've been trying to figure out how I get back to that peaceful feeling where I can just enjoy the bush. And I guess sometimes I just take my camera and go out. And again, it's the children that help. But it is hard because... Um, I do worry about some of our team too because we had those four years with the honey badgers and then we had those four years in Niasa where we could just enjoy it. So we have that inside, that solid core of right. what we're saving. But a lot of them have come into conservation and right into the, the hardest part of conservation, the fight for it, without that. And I sometimes wonder what sustains them, mm. like what keeps them going when all they see is the craziness. For sure, and it's the same as our anti-poaching scouts. And I often, um, you know, there's this whole, I'm not a very military person, so the anti-poaching side is hard for me, but it's obviously yeah. very necessary. So mm. we have 50 anti-poaching scouts. They're all armed with shotguns, and it's all, you know, it's all very military. Right. But what concerns me is do they know what they're fighting for, or are they just doing a job because they've never had a job before and we hire locally? And if you don't have a cause... Then, then you'll never keep going, and then it becomes meaningless. The whole, like, you'll lose your life without a cause. Right. And so, that's something that I feel is my role is to try and keep pulling everybody back and saying, "Do you know what you're fighting for?" Take our team out, even our cook and our, everybody else, to say, "Do you know what this is that we're trying to do here?" So that you have a cause, because that definitely sustains. Keep an eye, because we know why we're doing it. I know why I just sit at my computer. All what do you feel like are the biggest challenges right now for Niasa? Mm. It's been very sad watching what's happened to Niasa over 16 years. So we've lost 10,000 elephants. So it's heartbreaking to me to even consider those numbers. So the, the biggest ultimate cause is poverty, extreme poverty of the people living inside, the 40,000 people living inside, contrasted with the amount of money that can be made from wildlife trade and illegal mining. So you somehow have to find a way for people to be able to feed their families and look after their families by doing something legal. And there are so few legal alternative livelihoods there because the soil's not great, there are no markets, and yet they can make huge amounts of money from ivory, lion bone, and they're just trying to look after their families. So right. it's like sort of this combination of poverty, population growth, no alternatives. Um, this fact that we close these doors with conservation, we create a wall, but we don't open anything up. And so they're getting pushed into this smaller right. and smaller place where they just they didn't see the future. So close, it's that sort of that what do we call it, fulcrum. Yeah, yeah. Of of how you solve that at right. a level that's. Thanks for taking the time to sit in on part one of my conversation with conservationist Colleen Begg. Join me next time for part two as we talk about everything from poaching to imposter syndrome, women's leadership, and the double-edged sword of being a rule breaker. Don't forget to follow at Podcast Cowgirl on Facebook and Instagram for photos and updates associated with our two podcasts, My Way and Lecker Y'all. If you have any ideas for folks we should interview on My Way, please email us at podcastcowgirl at gmail.com. 
Thanks again. See you next time.